I'm Dave Williams. This is Sheila with an exclamation point and no last name, as far as I'm concerned, anyway. Um, she didn't have a last name when we worked together at WHBQ in Memphis, and uh, she was one of the first women disc jockeys that I'm aware of, which is why I wanted to talk to you. Since then, you have uh, acquired a last name or a couple of them, but the one that you're going by professionally is Sheila York. Is that okay that I say it that way? Yes, yes, Sheila York. That's my but I mean, you know, professionally, name, yeah. uh, because you're a novelist now. Uh, as well as you know, working the job that actually pays for the mortgage. Yes, I do. <laughs> right, that makes you a real writer, right? Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Um, you know what? I'm thinking when I met you, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, because memory is a tricky thing. I think I know, but uh, you could tell me, no, that's not the way it happened at all. I, th I think I hired you at WHBQ. Yes. Yeah. And where were you before that? I'm sorry, your memory is just fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, that wasn't much. <laughs> we, we got a ways to go. Where, and where were you working at the time before that? Um, I was working at, you know, I actually can't remember the call letters. I think I've repressed them. Uh, it was a radio station that belonged to the TV station that yeah. was Peabody Hotel. They had their offices in the basement. I have actually, I have thought and thought about that and said, you know, I could look it up. And I'm like, nah. <laughs> that was in Memphis? That was in Memphis. Okay. And I cannot remember how I came onto your radar, but nor can I remember the first time you contacted me. No, me but neither. I do remember uh, that we had some really pleasant conversations. And I felt very comfortable with you. And then things kind of went south at that other radio station because there was a, uh, a union dispute. And um, you had a union in Memphis in the middle 70s? No, that was the dispute. <laughs> <laughs> we wanted one and the management didn't. I see. But it it was it was it caused a lot of bad feelings, and uh, because I was one of the movers and shakers, I actually ended up being taken off the air. Wow. Yes, and I remember call, we had you and I had conversations, and then the I the second they told me, I went into an office, closed the door, picked up the phone, called you, and said, "Dave, yeah. I'm 
taken off the air. And you said something along the lines of, oh, great, you can come work here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't remember any of that either. Um, It was like, okay. Oh, I, I'd like to go. I'd like to go back to uh, uh, kind of the beginning. Get a little bit on a little bit on the background of your your life. I read uh, I read your bio and your story on your on your uh, website. A really good website. It's SheilaYork.com. You can go look at it while we're talking here if you like. Um, you uh, you were you you pretty much grew up all over the world, didn't you? I did. Uh, well, all over the the world as I would have known it as a kid. It certainly seemed very, uh, but it was mostly in the United States. And then my father had a tour of duty in Germany. Um, He was a career army officer. And back then, a lot of people moved frequently. They would shift the military around where they needed more people. And it was not unusual for families to, to move every two to three years. And we did. Um, I was born in New Jersey, where I'm living now, about 10, 10 miles away from where my parents were living when I was born. That's funny. Uh, then I we moved to Pennsylvania. My father was uh, sent to Korea during the Korean War, so he uh, we were living with my grandparents. Then to Virginia, then to Kentucky. Um, so I, I figured, and then we went to Germany and back to Tennessee, where eventually my parents settled. So that's what, six times uh, before I was 10. Well, yeah. I mean, that was enti- it seemed entirely normal to you at the time, I mean, being that age, because... We always think about oh the poor kids you know they can't they don't have any stability and they don't get to make friends and stuff that was just your life right it was my life and uh, how well prepared for being a disc jockey was I <laughs> that's right that's right they always say that uh, you can tell a disc jockey in the parking lot because there's no rust on his bumper hitch <laughs> so so uh, as as a student in school when you were a kid were you a good student uh, were there particular subjects that you excelled in. I was a very good student, actually. Yeah. I, yeah, my uh, my sister Barbara and I were very close together in age, and uh, she, uh, later in high school, I think I was a good student because she would tell me what was on last year's exam in that particular class. Because oh was yeah, that's helpful. In school, and it's not cheating. Oh, and and well, the fact that it's, I was reading, it's studying. Uh, Papers might have been, yeah. um, but in in grade school and in uh, what they call middle school now, yeah, I was I was a very good student. Um, history mm-hmm. was my favorite subject. I wonder if that partially because you did spend time in other countries, in different cultures. I don't know where. I've often thought about why children have certain... Or or maybe it was just that you had a, a one specific teacher who was really impressive. Well, yes, that that is absolutely true. Uh, my, my love of history blossomed under a teacher called um, Betty Jo Wallace. Hmm. Jo spelled J-O-E. Really? <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, she was a pioneer. Uh, she... Uh, she really loved history, and she all she taught me civics, which people don't teach anymore. 
and um, I just I just loved to to read history, and I I liked English, and the, I liked I liked talking about literature, but I never read any of the books right. that were on the list. I was always busy reading other books. Yeah. I, I went through all of the John Steinbeck while they were while they were we were supposedly reading Jane Eyre and there was my sister then prompting me for the test. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now after she goes to the <laughs> yeah. yeah, I um I didn't enjoy school. I was very, very shy. Mm-hmm. A lot of anxiety and I wonder if that had did have something to do with traveling so much. I think I was naturally a I don't know, but I, I do know from my own experience many years, uh, there are a lot of really shy people in radio. And uh, you, with your psychology background, you might understand that better than I do. Uh, I tend to think that we're sort of compensating on one hand. And on another, you know, I, like you, I have, a, I have some theater background. I did a lot of stage plays, and uh, I've done a lot of emceeing of big events. And so forth. I can stand on a stage and talk to five thousand people, or play a role in front of three or five hundred people, no problem at all. But it comes down to talking to one or two. Uh, that's that's really nervous. That's really nerve wracking for me. And well, and in radio, you can't see those people, right? Can't. So you can imagine, as they tell you to do, you know, that uh, person that you're talking to. Yeah, they always told you that. That was one of the things, Sheila, that I I learned. Uh, after a number of years of doing radio, it's like, first of all, you learn all the rules and then you learn when to ignore the rules. And that was the first one I ignored. It's like, that's ridiculous. How can I pretend I'm talking to one person? I know that there are thousands out there. I can't see them. I can't hear them. All I can do is just, you know, know that that they're there and uh, do my thing. I I would imagine many different people like if I was on the air at four in the morning, I imagine the person who's in the bakery. I knew what uh, that guy was like. And the, or the, the, the cab driver or uh, the nurses in the hospital listening um, to us, you know, um, late night. Mm. And I pictured that scene and talking to them. It was easier for me than... than no, you did it right. If you're seeing a thousand people. That, that for a shy person is really intimidating. <laughs> All right, let's let's get you into your radio career. But before we can get there, we have to go through college. You did you got a in what uh, uh, some advanced degree in psychology, didn't you? How did that happen? Uh, well, that happened because I probably didn't make it clear on the bio. <laughs> I did I did graduate work in psychology, uh-huh. University of Tennessee, mm-hmm. but it was not too far into the whatever the, the three year program, whatever it was that. I realized that that was not a career that I, I, I just, I was not prepared to be a psychologist. What was your, what, what was the interest that led you to it in the first place? I liked understanding a little bit more about how people behaved. And I yeah. became very much into child psychology. Mm. Yeah. I um and I, I was for a while uh, I did some intern work when I was in undergraduate school at the at where the, the university I went to, which is Austin P State University in Tennessee in Clarksville, uh, Tennessee. Um, they had a daycare center, 
and seeing those kids and how they were, you know, and, and following through my reading their developmental levels. And it was, it was a wonderful thing, but I didn't think it was something that I was even emotionally prepared to do professionally. I, uh, I realized that maybe part of my interest in psychology was trying to figure out my own issues. Uh, they say that's that's somewhat true, but well, uh, I have I, I always I always had a a really fat, a deep interest in psychology and still do. In fact, when I was going through high school, I thought, okay, that's that's the road I'm going to take in college. Um, but I didn't because I was in radio by then, and they kept changing my shift, and you know, I was doing what I wanted to do, so I just never went that route. But over time, I started to realize that that would be a very difficult thing for me to do too, for because of my own emotional instability. There, you know, <laughs> I, well, seriously, at one point, uh, I would. <laughs> I was emotionally unstable. <laughs> well, many years ago, I was actually diagnosed with clinical depression, and um, uh, after having a number of people talk to me about my relationship with my mother, you know, and I'm watching the, the dollars click off the the, the clock. And I finally got a, a physician who just said, why don't we try you on some medication and see if that helps. It helped and it works and I'm fine now, but um, that would have been difficult now, but I read something in your, in your, in your website that uh, you were actually going down the road toward uh, uh, psychological research. Is that right? Was it yeah. research? Yeah, I was I, I was studying. Um, I did some some statistical studies, and uh, so when people when people tell us tell me now, you know, well, I did this survey, and I'm going, oh, really? How many participants? How did you select them? Were they this? Were they that? I was, yeah. this? and you can plump up a thing. Then it's not a scientific survey, dear. Uh, <laughs> I, I uh, experiments with with you know animals, rats, you know, behavioral. Uh, sorts of things, which I really loved. I uh, I had a pet white rat for a while, <laughs> mm -hmm. and he, you know, he aged, he passed. So, what got you into radio? I was actually. And how old were you? Uh, twenty-two, which is it's rather old for for disc jockeys because men. You know they're they're DJing when they're fourteen and they've and they've got you know like your voice they've got a nice deep voice but they're fourteen and they're, right but that wasn't even on my radar I did like performing as you've said it's a lot easier to perform when you're doing a role mm -hmm. that I I was I when I left school when I left graduate school. Um, I found an ad. It was actually in the newspaper. They were looking for young women to audition to be the weekend weather girl Ooh. at WBIR. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. Yes, they called us weather girls back then. Um, and I went and auditioned to make the part. Really? <laughs> Did this was in Kentucky? Oh No, this this was in Knoxville, Tennessee. Oh, Doc, at Knoxville. That's what I was thinking, yeah. Um, and I was the weekend weather girl. Uh, for a while and then the woman who was doing it during the week got a got a good job in Nashville and uh, they decided to hire somebody to do um, all of the weather <laughs> she'd just be there all the time wow uh 
Yeah, I think maybe they just said the weather on Saturday nights or Sunday nights. <laughs> uh, you know, they'd have the anchor to it. Right. And have the girl in the skirt um, pointing to the weather map. Right. Uh, so I got laid off from that one. But in the interim, I had met their, they had a radio station. And the, and the program director there was named Ken McGavin, who was looking for someone who was quantifiable to be a disc jockey. They were looking for a woman. Quantifiable and, in what sense? That's it. When the people who really felt that it was time to put women on the air, uh -huh. they would have trouble finding one who was already qualified. Mm. So they found somebody who was qualifiable. Who I see. Do it. Uh, you know, they people. You know, some people would say, "Well, you know, there aren't any qualified. It's really hard to tell. It's, it's you know, a very small pool of people." Well, why is that? That's sort of a vicious circle yeah. rationalization. But Ken uh, gave me a chance, and uh, wow, and had a lot of faith because I really being a disc jockey is a lot different than being on television. It's, there's so many things. And there was actually a lot of manual stuff that you had to do back then with the mm -hmm. chewing up the things, and the chewing up the, the, the records and making sure you didn't knock into the turntable and then right. turn it off and there's no sound or you're in the middle of the song. It was, um, there were a lot of, of things you had to keep track of and I had absolutely no experience. So he, that was a big leap of faith on his part. But apparently it worked out. It How long were you there? Uh, let's see. That was three, uh, less than a year. Mm -hmm. And then I moved to Memphis because a friend of mine um, had a contact in, in, he was doing graduate work and he knew some people who worked at, um, the radio station I just mentioned that was in the Peabody and his call letters I've completely repressed. Yes. Um, uh, but he knew some people and I took my you know, little recording, took my air check and uh, went down and I had an interview and um, and they hired me. Um, first, I was working um, at a, uh, another company. I was doing another job. I was working uh -huh. in a company you know, full time and then doing weekends on uh, on the Memphis radio station at a an easy listening station. W R E C. Oh, uh, W Rec re recording. I mean, okay, right. <laughs> how can you? How can you repress? <laughs> w Rec. <laughs> you don't even have to say the W. Just it's Rec Rec it's Radio, a, right? Um, but the people, you know, and the the people there were actually very kind to me, and they were very helpful. Um, the difficulty became later when they were purchased by a company, which I've also repressed the name of. And that's when things got, got kind of mm. weird. So the people who were there then were very helpful and, and you know, gave me advice. So you were doing, wait a minute, let me see if I get this straight now. <laughs> maybe, maybe there's some step that we missed, but you went from weekend weather girl to we like, Full-time weather girl. Briefly. Easy listening disc jockey. 
Well, yes, to easy listening. I was doing those two things sort of at the same time. And then from there to RKO Radio in Memphis, WHBQ. Mm -hmm. Wow, maybe if I told you that, you would have had second thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, that is an amazing leap because that type of radio, boss radio, top 40 (laughs) RKO style radio, was it was it was what everybody in in rock and top 40 wanted to do to work for an RKO station RKO. and you just bounced right into it and I don't like I said I don't remember the whole hiring process but I I can tell you one thing that I do know just listening to this air check and this air check from 1976 so uh, you were hired a year or two before that but uh listen to this thing you were there you were on it listen W-H-B-Q. In Mid-South weather, got a 50% chance of rain today. High 83, 50% chance tonight. Low 69. Currently in Memphis, 73 at WHBQ. WHBQ, keep on rocking me, baby. Off that fly like an eagle album, that's Steve Miller with Sheila going from Phoenix to Tacoma to Philadelphia to Atlanta to L.A. I think that guy ought to have a talk with his manager. WHBQ. Stop lusting after other women in your heart, quit committing adultery with your eyes, and stop giving interviews to Playboy magazine. WHBQ, ah, going to be serving the biggest hot dog in the world, and the Q crew wants you to be there. More details coming up. Yeah. WHBQ, oh yeah. Major Harris, we all practice our deep breathing exercises. 1242 and Sheila, for you, love won't let me wait. Love there having the same effect on me as four cups of coffee, except love doesn't stain your teeth. WHBQ, Tavares and Sheila, heaven must be missing. Yeah, well, speaking of that, they're going to be exploring the possibility of life on Mars. At 7.30, Monday night at the Raleigh Branch Library, 3157 Powers Road. Rick Collins, how am I supposed to be concentrating on reading this very important public service announcement when you are playing with my body? You are Skip the public service announcement. Play with my body. WHBQ and Sheila going to get out of here and judge the uh, why I'm glad Rick Deese is coming to the Q contest for the evening with Chicago. Rick Collins up next to do it for you. He's got under his arm a copy of the new Playboy magazine with the Jimmy Carter interview. I, Rick Collins, I'm surprised. I didn't know you read Playboy magazine. Hey, now, now, wait a minute. I, we gotta make this clear. I do not read Playboy magazine. Oh? I just look at the pictures like everybody else. You were not only one of the first women in, um, uh, you know, y- young contemporary music radio, but you were absolutely hot. You jumped out of the speaker. You were very, very clever. Every break had something, uh, something kind of remarkable in it, and uh, I, I say you, you're you're a natural. Now, the other question I have for you about that period of time. Oh, well, let me just stop there and let, ask you your feelings about what I just said and and how you got to that point, how you got that way, with really no experience in contemporary music radio. I listened to WHBQ. Yeah. Uh, listen. That know, pretty well I, says it. I, I listened to Mason Dixon and, uh, and George Klein and, uh, and, uh, and Dude Walker. Oh, Dude Walker. Yes. Yeah. Oh, golly. And J. Michael. Right. And we have yeah. lost. 
Is he gone? He is. I didn't know. I haven't talked to uh, I got in touch with Dude very briefly a few years ago, but uh, uh, I've kind of lost track of all those people. But anyway, okay, so you just heard it and did it. That's pretty I, much it. I, it was, you know, kind of imitation. I've, I think there's I, that I, I'm going to ask you if this is true, um, whether you think it's true that when, in, when you're in some sort of artistic or performance, you sort of start off imitating the people you admire. Sure. The style they have, the way they present. It's true with writing, too. It is absolutely yeah. true with writing. Yeah, I woke up one morning and thought I was Raymond Chandler. And then... <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, but there were no women for you for you to uh, to for you oh. to be your models. No, uh, I had heard some women on the radio. I mean, I was certainly not first, but but they were doing different kinds of radio on right. stations that I could pick up where I was living. Um, so that was. Uh, no, I guess I I just did, you know, what sounded good. Yeah, I, yeah. I, there was no there was no role model. I should say, um, for those of you who just heard that uh, these these pieces of uh, Sheila on the air back in the seventies on WHBQ, I should explain for those of you not familiar with the sound of uh, music radio in those days, it probably gets you laughing laughing like crazy because it just sounds it sounds corny. It sounds uh, hyped, you know, that's, but that's what it was. That's the way we, it was the development of the fifties uh, and sixties disc jockeys who were full of patter, right? Always had this, you know, plat well, a lot of alliteration and a lot of fast talking and so forth. It was an evolution step, evolutionary step from there to what became known as the RKO sound. It was the big problem. I'll tell you that I had in Memphis was um, all the RKO stations, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Boston, uh, us. We we all sounded alike, really good, but uh, but alike. Mm -hmm. And I guess the corporation liked that. Um, I got to Memphis. I said, "This is not this is not a Memphis sounding radio station." And I had a constant battle with Los Angeles over music. They wouldn't let me play any uh, any southern rock, any regional type of music, you know, to try to try to actually attract the people who live there. <laughs> <laughs> and the DJ approach was the same too. But I wasn't. I had. I had no problem with that. It was fun. Uh, so I threw a little digression there. <laughs> so how long were you there, WHBQ? Mm. You moved on to Houston, I think. Yes. I was there maybe about three years. I really can't remember yeah. now, like 23, 74. Yes, because I went to Houston in 77 or 78. Were you working a kilt there? I did. Another they big are, station. Yeah, big and a major market. And a major market. That and Houston was booming. Uh, you know, the, the traffic was bumper to bumper. The ribs were great. <laughs> and except in the summer, the weather was fabulous. Yeah. 
And it was an exciting time to be in Houston because it was happening. Yeah. They were, they were, they were growing leaps and bounds. Everybody was coming to Texas for, you know, the jobs, the economy was booming. That's why yeah. I'm here now. That was a, I'm sorry. I said, that's why I'm here now in I Texas. Oh yes. I'm in oh, Dallas. So that's yeah. I, I have a soft spot in my heart for Texas. I think everybody does. I think everybody is almost everybody in the country or in the world for that matter wants to be a Texan to some degree, you know, some degree. more or less. Very um, yeah. uh, story about, about how, about everything that sums, summed up Houston. Okay. Okay. Um, Southwest Treeway. They used to have a venue where they played basketball and did concerts. It was called Summit. And they would they would have they had this big billboard of the hung over the freeway so you would know what's coming up feel free to name drop radio people in there because we're going to have a lot of radio people looking at this uh name drop my goodness well this this is what happened summit and then i'll name drop some people okay like uh bo weaver and uh captain jack and uh uh bo weaver works here in dallas now i know him yeah Ow, I thought he was still in California. <laughs> no, not for a long time. Every once in a while, I hear his voice on a commercial or something. Yeah. I go, that's Bo. I know that's Bo. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay. So I'm driving up the freeway, and here is the billboard. And it says, tonight, Houston versus the United States. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. You got my attention. What does it mean? <laughs> I thought. That pretty much sums it up. But what was it for? Oh, it was a basketball game of some oh. sort. Sporting event. Yeah, yeah. That was <laughs> I left that part out. Sorry. Um, <laughs> maybe you said it and I just didn't catch it. I I thought I laughed. I thought, yeah. That's yeah, that's uh, that's that's definitely a Texas thing. And it also speaks of a better time in advertising, but we don't need to go down that road. <laughs> So when you were in Houston, did they call you just Sheila, just the one name? Yes. Yeah. Why is that, do you think? Do you have any idea? Have you thought about that? Because the only reason I, and I'm not even sure that I'm the one that said, you know, let's just call you Sheila with no last name. I, maybe that's how you came to me. I don't remember. But no, I do know. I not. No, I was using both names. Okay. I do know that RKO had uh, another female disc jockey in San Francisco. It might have actually been a little bit after you. I can't remember. Her name was Shana. I know her. Do you? Yes. And that just kind of seemed to be a trend at the time. And uh, I don't know if that was just, uh, you know, made you stand out or what. But uh, I always well, say I put the exclamation point after your name because you had that, uh, we, we call it the jock jingle, the shout. <laughs> it was Sheila, 56 <laughs> HPQ. And that's, and it was really Pow! Right there. Right there. And then there is your voice. The um, I I was not very fond of my birth last name, and I didn't think it sounded good on the air. So, um, and Lipschitz, Sheila Lipschitz. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it just didn't. It didn't. It didn't feel like me. Hmm. I was. I I was fine with having one name. 
Oh, then we did the bit out of it where I was going to find a last name because I didn't have one and then (laughs) decided that didn't work. And so we went back to Shira. Uh, When I came to New York after I left Houston, I I was offered a job in New York. Oh, wait a minute. You went from Houston to New York? Yes. Okay. I, I hope you understand. Maybe you don't. <laughs> you know, I want you to appreciate that most of the jocks that I've known in my career have worked for like 25 years to get to a major market, to get to Houston. Getting to New York from there is like, uh, you know, you got to really, really be special. You really do. So there you are. Job number four, the Big <laughs> Apple. Go ahead and explain it. What um, station? Oh, uh when I first came up here, it was W WNSR. Okay. Which was a, um, no, I'm sorry. I, I, I had two jobs in New York. And okay. I, I, I went to work. I was working in Houston and they had a change in management. And the guy who took over as program director did not think they were going to change to country music. And he didn't think I was quite right for country music. Mm-hmm. Then I got a job offer in New York from WHM, which was the world's largest country music station. <laughs> ah, sweet revenge. Yes. Um, and Dean Hallam, who was the program director then, and um, Brian Moores, who was their, uh, their the station manager. They listened to the air check. They brought me up. They offered mm-hmm. me up. And... Uh, I had to sell my house in Houston. My, my poor husband was like, okay, honey, you got to sell the car. You got to sell the house. You got to move everything. And then, you know, because I'm in New York. He was, ooh, that was a job. And uh, I did that. Um, did country music for, well, for about five years um, in the early 80s. We were also the New York Mets radio station for a while um the great tim mccarver just oh yes he just passed i everything i know about tactics and nuance in baseball started with tim oh. ralph kiner also the baseball great uh, yep. was partner ralph used to listen to the country music radio station i i once met him and it was one of the nicest things anybody said to, ever said to me. He he shook my hand and said, "You really know baseball." And I, was like, <laughs> I was thinking, "Well, I learned it from you." That's cool. Yeah, that was he was guy. He let me do. Uh, they brought me into the control group once and let me do uh, the um, that thing without express written consent by. You oh know, yeah, 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 yeah. It used to be slightly longer, and there was a word in it. That was hard to pronounce. Uh, you know, you could stumble over it, and Ralph kind of stumbled over words. Uh, I'm trying to think of it because I've heard that I've heard that disclaimer so many hundreds or thousands of times. Oh, but I sent him a letter once and and give him some advice on how to how to pronounce that word. Yeah. Treat it words and just go in one word. Just treat it as one word, and the rest of it will come. And <laughs> so he invites me to the into the, the control <laughs> box, the broadcast booth, and goes, okay, you do it. <laughs> That's fun. What fun. 
realized, Fauna, I've got to do a little bit of work during the 1986 World Series, doing pregame um, interviews with people, you know, little color thing. And uh, Bob Costas was, uh, you know, sort of in the earlier, mid, mid early part of, early, mid part of his career. And uh, so I got to meet him and work with him. It was, yeah. That was that was some fun an interview, uh, country music stars. Uh, I I had Reba McIntyre on the show before she uh, when she'd had only like maybe two songs. That was before she got her accent. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I've always accused her of really really slathering it on when she gets in front of a camera. She, you know, she may have because. <laughs> In, you know, in that character. Yeah. And I just said hello to her and she took the whole interview. It was the easiest interview I've ever done in my life. I and hate those. Was, yeah. And I interviewed the Judds and Glenn Campbell and it was it was it was, you know, high times in Manhattan. You know what? I've I've interviewed a lot of really famous people. Uh interviewed Jimmy Carter, uh, you know. Uh, too many, too many movie stars and TV stars to mention, and and country music stars. Good heavens, uh, had uh, um, forever and ever. Amen. I can't think of his name now. Anyway, he came and did an hour with me in Los Angeles, and uh, uh, he was just wonderful. He sang his song and dedicated it to my wife because that was our song, forever and ever. Amen. And. Uh, uh, and and then one time, one time, I had an opportunity to meet Willie Nelson. We went to a concert. It was in a small rodeo venue outside of Sacramento in Folsom. And it was small. It was a dirt arena. And we had folding chairs on the dirt. And that was like the best way in the world possible to see Willie Nelson. This was in the 80s. So, I mean, he was at the height of his fame. And he did a great show. And then he stepped off the stage and just wandered into the crowd, started shaking hands and signing autographs and taking pictures and all that stuff. When I finally got to him, I was absolutely, completely catatonic. Couldn't say a word. <laughs> My wife said, okay, Willie, a great show. Can we, uh, can you have, can you sign our tickets here? And he did. And he smiled and he kind of flirted with her a little bit, I think. And then, um, and I'm just standing there with a stupid grin on my face. And then finally she said, my husband has a morning radio show here in, in the area. And he was wondering if you would be able to talk with him on the phone for a few minutes tomorrow morning. He says, oh, darling, we're going to be halfway across the country by then. He says, the bus is out packed, warming up right now. We'll probably be toward, you know, closing in on Utah. So, and there were no cell phones in those days, so. You know, okay, understood. Well, thank you very much. Had a great time. And I know that Willie walked away from there going, radio? The guy doesn't even talk. <laughs> I was just so starstruck. All right. Yeah, I know that feeling. There would be like, there were times I would do that and do that. Right. <laughs> or you ask a great question and then somebody gives you a two-word answer. And now there's there's no place to go because you're not you don't have your next question ready and there's no way to comment on that two-word answer right so you just stand there looking stupid and it's like it's like when you're on stage you'll know this too 
when somebody, if, uh, if you go up on your line, if you forget your line and you're just looking at the other person and you don't even know you forgot your line, you. so you'd look very confident and you're just calmly waiting for them to talk, but it's your turn. It makes them look stupid because they have to try to fill in and get you to give, come up with the correct response. Well, you really got me spinning off off track here. So, huh? That'll happen <laughs> when you get to just chatting with each other. You go off. So you, you're in New York. What happened next? Is your radio career about to come wind down here, and you start writing, or what? Um, I had started writing. Well, I'd always really been writing. I think I tried my hands at some things when I was a kid, and then I would write some material for uh, some of the disc jockeys, you know, if I had a good line or, you know, something that they could use on a morning show. Yeah. Uh, uh, you have more time to talk. But as far as a novel, I, I started writing in New York City seriously. And I, for whatever reason, thought that I was going to write a science fiction novel, and I don't even read science fiction. Huh. So, but my, my husband reads a lot of science fiction. Yeah. Man, He's a writer too, isn't he? He is, David Nybert. Um, has, um, a couple of science fiction novels and uh, three mysteries that have been published. Wow. He's working on a book now um, that's very different from that, and um, I... I was going to tell you, but I don't. It's it's about it's a story about a, a family that, uh, during the secret war in Laos. I mean, it's a very serious subject, and I. What I'm sorry, I couldn't. I didn't catch his name. What's his name? David Nybert. Oh, okay. Um, so I started writing because he was writing. You know, he gave me the confidence that you know I could I could do that. And after the science fiction debacle, uh, I never did finish that. It's in it's upstairs in the attic with in a file cabinet, along with the first romance novel I ever wrote. Yeah. Yes, which turned out to be about seven hundred pages long. <laughs> yes. Uh, and then I started writing about what I really like, and what I really like. Mysteries and movies, and I'm particularly fond of post-war Hollywood movies. Mm -hmm. They're not many of them are great movies because the studio system. Um, they would plug an actor into a role or an actress who just wasn't ready. It's the wrong. But the stars were always so interesting, and. And the stories, once I learned more about the production code that ruled Hollywood from the early 30s to, well, it broke down in the 60s, uh, even though it was supposed to be still enforced, where you couldn't say a lot of things, you couldn't do a lot of things. The, the, the myth that you always had to have one foot on the floor if you sat down on the bed, you know, people were sitting on the bed. Mm. It's not a myth. It is a myth. Uh, but it's 
it was some of the things, you know, kisses couldn't last more than, you know, this period of time. Mm. It wasn't part of the regulation, but it it is what people would sometimes do. They'd be very aware that if you kissed longer than, you know, three seconds, that you might have to cut the scene and refilm it or something. Unwritten rules. Unwritten rules. Yeah. And I started writing a book. Like I told you earlier, I woke up one morning and thought I was Raymond Chandler. I uh, I started writing a book. We couldn't write a book about private detective and post-war Hollywood. I mean, geez, that has been done and brilliantly. But you could write a story about a woman who has to go see one of them because she gets in very big trouble. Mm-hmm. And they end up solving this mystery, this couple of killings, sort of in stormy tandem. You can write that book. You can write the heroine of the story is um, screenwriter, a script doctor. Mm-hmm. She becomes, she's sort of below the radar. You know, she's a script doctor. They yeah. hire a bungalow and she's supposed to come up with brilliant dialogue. Yeah, they don't even get their name on the screen, right? They don't get their name on the screen. They do not get screen credit. So, and she goes from product project, 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 so she can become, she can be in different places so that there's not always a murder going on at the studio at which she's working, <laughs> which I thought that we don't want to do the J.D. Fletcher thing. Right. Would you ever invite that woman to dinner? <laughs> she was, anyway, I have a little bit of an allergy and I'm having to sip some water. That's okay. Um, so you've written a series of mysteries. That's what mystery writers like to do, right? Take the take one and romance writers take one character and make a series yeah. out. Solve them and, and and carry them through a series because it's if you have if the fans fall in love with these characters, they will follow them. Yeah. And four books so far. Um, the first one was. The first one where she meets the private detective. Oh, her name is Lauren Atwell, by the way. Lauren Atwell. Atwell, yes. A-T-W-I-L-L. Not. It was a placeholder name, actually. And then I became very fond of it because I was when I was writing it, I had a, a poster of the Hound of the Baskervilles that the original Hound of the Baskervilles sitting uh, hanging on the wall and I just was picking up names I was like okay this person's I'm gonna and I used some of those last names and Lionel Atwell was in the movie so I uh, sorry and there you then, go yeah, but I tried other names and I didn't like <laughs> there she is um four in that series the first one is called Starstruck Dead and did you have was that immediately accepted for publication or did you have to go through a lot of uh, oh, that book, when it was originally called Dead Level, was, uh, I wrote that in the 80s, no, the late, early 90s, maybe. Finished it, sent it around, got some really nice rejection letters. Mm-hmm. And then I got other things came up, like earning a living. <laughs> and I, uh, And I picked it up again in the late 90s, thinking, well, you know, if not now, when? And I... Um, serendipitously, I was at that time working as an editor 
at Morgan Stanley in their research production department. And one of the temps that I hired to help us get out a quarter of um, like the an annual report uh, happened to know an agent. I was I couldn't believe it. She said, oh, I know an agent. I'll introduce you. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but you know, when you get really lucky, you need to be prepared. So I took the manuscript to to um Well, there's there's luck and there's also natural talent. I don't need I, you know, I I read that first chapter that you put in your in of the uh, of your latest book, I guess, and it's in your website, and I'm really really impressed. I've done some writing myself, and I'm really impressed. And I'm wondering, you know, how much how much uh, training or self education did you do, or is it just you know did it just roll out of your keyboard that way? Nothing rolls out of your keyboard. <laughs> You wait for the day, you hope for the day that something will roll out of your keyboard. And if it does roll out of your keyboard, maybe the next morning you wake up and go, what was I thinking? Oh, delete, 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 delete. The story. I liked the story very much. And it did come, it never comes easily, but it was certainly something that I was very, very committed to. And I wrote once it was accepted by the agent. She had some rewrites she wanted me to do. And I did the rewrites. And then she submitted it. And it took, you know, it was about six months. Um, it hung around in places. And then finally um, uh, we sold it. Which, and then I wanted another book, so I like. Oh, oh, and this is something you probably know. If, you're if somebody says, "Oh, and uh, you have a follow-up for this, right? You you have a sequel." You nod your head and say yes. Of course. Very firmly. Oh yes. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> I jumped around with an idea and went like madly um, finishing the, the second book. And then uh, the third one was, and the fourth one, as you say, just came out. It's called No Broken Hearts. And of course, there are lots of broken hearts in, in that book. It's, um, I think it might be my favorite book. With Hero, the hero, there are a couple of characters in there that are inspired by actual people whom I either didn't like or loved. Right. Right. I've written some plays and I, uh, and I'm messing around with some novel length material, but I found it uh, when I was writing characters, writing dialogue in particular, that it was very helpful for me to have somebody that I knew pretty well in mind because I would get their rhythm of their voice the, the words that they would use that might be a little different from somebody else, you know, is it, that kind of little trick. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. They have to all have an independent voice. Right. They can say sort of the same words, but if actions while they're doing it, something yeah. that's particular to them, uh, I, yeah, 
they definitely have to have a particular way of talking and you have to hear it. Yeah. That's why I often, in fact, my heroine does this sometimes because it's something I do. You pick up a, you pick something up and you hold it in between your fingers like a cigarette because everybody was smoking. Lauren yeah. doesn't, you know, um, but she'd be doing that and talking to herself. And then she'd talk as the other character in a di in dialogue uh -huh. and sit down and write the, the dialogue for, uh, for the screenplay because you gotta hear it reading out loud in that voice, reading your material out loud can be very helpful. Mm -hmm. If you hear the, then you hear that you haven't quite captured the way you, you, imagine that voice there are a few words there's a rhythm maybe they speak haltingly and how do you do that right. if you're writing, if you're writing dialogue but it needs to you need to capture those those particular characters and if you've got a character that sounds too much like the other one maybe you kill one just get rid of one of them i don't mean kill them off in the book but just yeah. compress them so, uh, somebody going to take one of these stories to uh, to the big screen? Don't we wish? So few books. Yes. Yeah. You know how long it took to get Lee Child on the screen, for goodness sake, to get Jack Reacher in the in the movies. It took forever. Yeah. No, right. his book had to have been optioned. Now that uh, all the movies are made by Marvel. Oh, <laughs> this is, yeah, I'm not into, I... And remakes of classics. I've never understood why anybody would remake a classic. You have no way to succeed. Oh, yeah, how is that going to work, actually? <laughs> um, although, um, I'm not sure that the original West Side Story is is considered a classic. I mean, it was a big movie at its time. Yeah. I, I thought the one, the recent one, was amazing. I Who did that? Who was that? Was that... It wasn't Spielberg, was it? Somebody of that nature. That... Okay, I could look uh, it up. Oh, well, it's all right. It doesn't matter. Anybody who wants to know can look it up. Um, yeah, they. I thought the the acting was wonderful and the choreography was. But you know, they come out in actual streets in New York City. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, listen, we're coming up on an hour here, and I just uh, I don't want to keep you and. Uh, just uh, tell you that it's been uh, really, really fun getting to know you. When when we worked together, first of all, it was a very brief period of time. Secondly, you were on the air from I think ten at night until like two in the morning, right? And uh, you know, and I would come in at uh, normal working hours around seven or eight in the morning, and so we never saw each other. I suppose we had we had uh, you know exchanged notes, memos, and so forth. Yeah, there'd be there'd be a memo in the box. I think. Yeah, yeah, but you were yeah. terrific. Always enjoyed working with you. Always very proud to have uh, have been the one to put you on the air there because uh, you, as we'll hear hear again with another little piece of your of your radio work in Memphis, uh, you were just uh, powerfully enthusiastic and very positive and full of fun, and you were that way in the hallways too. And I can see that that hasn't changed. That's nice. I'm still an extrovert. 
uh, when I need to be. <laughs> I want to thank you. I mean, something that you, you brought out, which I wanted to talk about, is that it was a big leap for me to go from sort of an easy listening, uh, light, soft rock. Well, it was really more easy listening to being um, a, a rock jock. And if I hadn't done that, the rest would not have followed. If you hadn't hired me. Now, I do now remember once we, we were talking about the Peabody Hotel and that kind of rang a bell. So while you were talking a little while ago, I went to, I went to a web browser and punched it in. I go, oh, yes, W-R-E-C. And I remember now that that's where you came from. So, yeah. All right. Sheila, thank you so much. I'll stay in touch, okay? I will. Just try to stop me. <laughs> <laughs> Wish you a lot of continued success with your writing and uh, your charmed life. I'm sure you've had down times, but you do seem to have had a charmed life. I have had a very fortunate life. Yeah. I, um, and some of it is luck with you know, the talent, of course, as you say, but it, it has worked out pretty darn well. I'm, I'm very happy. That's great. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Carry on. Bye-bye.